Hello and welcome to the second episode of the BeerWise podcast, the podcast that talks about what's going on in the world, BeerWise. We'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, 99 Bottles. 99 Bottles in Sarasota, advocates and merchants of extraordinary liquid located on 2nd Street. I'm your host, Mark Denote, and for this episode, we went to Tallahassee and talked with Deep Brewing Company's founder and head brewer, Ryan Lapete. We talked about adapting to the pandemic, the Tallahassee beer scene, what's in store for this small brewery, and a number of other items. Here's our conversation. This is the BeerWise Podcast, episode number two. We're here with Ryan Lapete from Deep Brewing. Thanks very much for, for having me here and for joining me for the podcast, Ryan. Yeah, man. Good to see you. Um, so how's your, how's your pandemic been? <laughs> Equal bits uh, slogging and slow and in the trenches, but also blazing fast as the calendar kind of ticks by. It's like this weird, you know, while it feels like there's been 72 months in this year already, um, we're already in November and already starting to plan through like what we're doing next year, which is kind of hard to do from, you know, the distorted numbers and data we've got from this year. So, yeah, are you... Are you finding it difficult to predict and you know, go against the numbers from 2020? I think it's a it's a tough thing for us at the at the size that we are. Is We've been doing this for a little over four years now, officially, and we've only been in distribution for two, like seriously. And every year has just been bigger and bigger and bigger. So it's, you know, if you never satisfied the demand because you couldn't make it, you know, so it's like, I don't know where we need to be as far as. So we're, I mean, we're using last year as a benchmark and then just seeing how much we can carve out of what we think we can produce uh, for the year. So all things considered, I think we've done a pretty darn good job of of pivoting, trying to run uh, real lean and efficient, trying to deleverage because Lord knows how long this thing's going to last. And so, so yeah, it's like, it's tough to go and look at last year's numbers, uh, figure out what we're happy with and like, oh, I'm comfortable with this. Then I take my gas, my foot off the gas, you know, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Just for, just for reference for anybody who might not be familiar with the, how big, when you say someone your size. So our, our brewery space and tasting room together, uh, about 3000 square foot, maybe a touch over that. We, we run a 10 barrel brew house, uh, 10 barrel, three vessel, all steam. And we think our, we have a fermentation capacity about 250 barrels at a time, uh, roughly. Uh, so we can, we probably get to about 3000 barrels. If we were really pushing and making sure our tank times were good, but, uh, I think we'll probably hit around 1200 barrels this year, which is where we ended last year before we kind of finished our upgrades. Okay. So yeah, we're, we're kind of on track with last year, uh, at least, uh, our production numbers. Okay. And then our tasting room, I think we're within about 8% of last year and gaining, you know, and the longer we're open. So, and that's including being, being essentially shut down the tasting room for about six months. Uh, yeah, I think while we were shut down, we were able to run curbside pretty effectively. And so that, that helped keep that number from really like looking ridiculous as far as how, how far we were starting behind from behind. So yeah, we made some some big advances. We partnered with the food truck and got open pretty pretty early okay. uh, with that. But still, we were at what I think 
roughly about 30% of our like OG seating capacity, even though we're allowed to go to 50%, like just the nature of six foot social distancing, you know, table space, seven ish, eight foot apart. Yeah. Small tasting room and awkward, like where walls are, there's no standing (laughs) room. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we're roughly about, I think 65 seats total. If you count like using the brewery floor as seating space, using like having maybe four people in the tasting, like our tasting room proper, which used to seat about 30 and then, uh, and then our outside space, having four picnic tables down from eight at the time. So, um, yeah, just our, our size of space, just trying to like be safe, Mm -hmm. keep our, our customers safe, keep our staff safe so that we didn't have to go through these like freak out moments of like someone tested positive and then you know now we got to send everybody out to are we going to be open next weekend so came up with a good system of like we've got these employees this these two weeks you know so people would rotate for a little while and that worked but then we started getting busy enough to where we needed more people on site we started table service instead of bar service so that we wouldn't have customers moving around the building all the time so that I think that helped out a lot. And that was during the time when the, when the, um, the state had everybody shut down. Uh, you had to either be a restaurant or partner with some kind of food truck. And then, uh, but curbside was okay. So you, you were able to, to activate curbside fairly quickly, you were telling me. Yeah, we got the news. I was talking to uh, Josh Abishan uh, via text message whenever, because we had gone ahead and like made a... probably a wrong decision in hindsight for the family to like go ahead and go out to Colorado. Um, They shut the mountain down within, I mean, we were putting our skis in the locker uh, and had checked into the hotel and we got the news that they had shut the mountain down. So we decided to just as family stay out there because we were one of, or we were four of maybe about 35 people that were still on the mountain in a resort for 16,000 people. So it was kind of nice. We're just like there by ourselves. Like uh, we were running our own little ski lift with the car going up the parking lot and then letting the kids ski down the hill. But uh, anyway, we we got the news. I was talking to Josh about like what, what all this meant for us. You know, he was working on if we could do like we were bars shut down, but can we run as a package store? Mm-hmm. And once we got the approval for that, I believe Proofenology here in Tallahassee had already had their websites up and running the week of, and we're only open Friday through Sunday anyway. Okay. So I believe that that first Friday that we would have been open is when we launched that website, okay. kind of built it on the plane on the way back, finished it up in the car coming from Atlanta. So, And then had it ready in time for service Friday. Yeah, and it all kind of, it all kind of like perfect storm. We got the website up and running, got the marketing started, and then our local 
tourism board had partnered with our Tallahassee Foodies website to run this like rally for Tally that kind of introduced everybody to the businesses that had gotten that curbside stuff kind of knocked out and figured out quick. Gotcha. Um, so we were just in time to get on that uh, on that bandwagon. And so we had great, great, like almost holiday sales that first weekend as everyone was kind of stocking up. And gotcha. That's awesome. So. And you, and you guys seem to be relatively seamless, and, and you've been... Uh, even coming out with new releases very regularly since the pandemic hit. How were you able to keep up with the schedule and, and getting all that out? I think one thing I, what Deeps does best is uh, is rotate. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, we've I think we've got like 315 brands in the portfolio. I mean, many of them are are treatments of of our uh, base beers, our core beers, but uh, just taking what we had in inventory, kind of parting ways with things that we knew were like ready to, you know. Hey, we're already close to code date on that anyway. So starting there, getting rid of stuff we knew wasn't going to make it to the end, and then going through our inventory and figuring out like, hey, let's pull this set of recipes we've got for these treatments, and then we'd plan out everything. So I think the hard part was trying to figure out how to fit it all in there without like kind of overwhelming people. Sure. We were kind of joking that we could release a stout every week all of next year with the stuff that we've come up with uh, this year uh, which do the stouts when you do a stout and because i notice you do them fairly regularly and you have have a mexican hot chocolate or cacao nibs coconut all these different ingredients is that when you put those on do they go out the door or do they do you find that they sit for a while or how do those uh, yeah, I mean, especially early on when, I mean, really the focus was on package. We had gotten those like twisty top cans. So it was kind of like mini growlers. And we were able to package them in a way that our dissolved oxygen was relatively low compared to like a growler fill. So we were not relatively low compared to like a canning line. But uh, but relatively low, so we had good package stability, and we weren't worried about those things going south uh, quickly. Yeah, it's we'd drop those at seven o'clock in the morning, and we'd be sold out. Some of them in like forty five minutes, which made it that much easier to plan for. Like, all right, we need to fit some sours kind of in between these guys. We're going to need two to three weeks for this treatment, you know that that kind of stuff. So once we kind of had our like, it took us almost a month to kind of figure that out and get the layout. And then once we got everything rolling, then everything changed again, you know, Uh, we got in a real good groove and then they started opening restaurants up. Um, And that changed our curbside dynamics because we were still closed. Some people can go out and and hang out and have uh, on-site beer and food. You got to wonder how much beer was spoiling, you know, in people's. So we had sent out our our field quality guys to uh, start cleaning people's tap lines as we heard that restaurants were open and make sure everyone was drinking good, fresh beer. But yeah, so the, those curbside dynamics shifted a little bit, and we had to rethink the the plan a touch because I think uh, we noticed like a fifty percent decline in curbside sales within a week of restaurants opening back up, and so we're like, either we got to be open, or you know we got to figure figure something else out. Sure. And then luckily, yeah, the uh, the 
food truck exception came shortly after that. So, did, the, did you find that once the bars and restaurants started opening back up, did you find that the keg, were keg sales kind of taking the place of of curbside, or was it uh, were you were you able to do pivot to kegs again, or is that did one kind of shift? You each made one shift, and now it's you're stuck that way. It, it took a little while for that that volume to start moving uh, for us, and I mean. One of the best things that we, the best choices we made was to get, like, just go ahead and, and like, clear all of the old beer out of this, out of the systems. Like, everyone that had kegs that were out of code, we, our distributor pulled that beer back in, and then we bought it back from them. And that way, when we were starting fresh, when everyone started back open, and I mean, from, like, a, like, a logistics perspective, all our guys were worried about at that point was pushing beer in. And so, yeah, beer started moving. It was a trickle because we were open. I think restaurants were 25% at that point. And then, uh, then the, we really saw it start moving, uh, especially our key accounts, the guys that move a lot of beer for us. We start started seeing beer move well at the 50% mark. Okay. And and while it wasn't, I wouldn't say sustainable, at least it was going in the right direction. So, Sure. Did you find that, so where we are now, we're recording this in the middle of November. Um, do you find that you've kind of reached equilibrium? Is this, is the way things are now as tasting rooms are back open and bars and restaurants are open at 100%. Is this, have we kind of come, at least come to a settling point or is this something where, you know, this is the volume you were doing three years ago? Um, I think uh, it, like really, really looking at the numbers, we were in our best position before the phase three portion dropped. Okay. Um, whenever, because as as a technically a restaurant at that point, because you had the food truck, right? Okay. We were we were rocking it. I mean, great curbside sales because you still have got a lot of the other bars in town that are closed. You know, there's not as many places for people to go. So while we're still at 50% capacity, like we're spread out and we've, we're safe. We've got our systems in place. Everything was designed for exactly what we were doing and running at that capacity at 50% capacity. So, but then once phase three dropped and all of a sudden everyone started opening up, like now our wholesale stuff is moving a lot faster. And I would say we're probably catching up or even passing our volumes. We went into the pandemic with like 90 something accounts locally. I think we came out with, we're, we're roughly 118. So I think uh, that that's one thing I've noticed is a lot of people have shifted a little bit more towards choosing local, especially when they're building their draft list uh, fresh. So that that's a, a ray of hope for us little guys, at least. So and you're only distributed. In, are you still only in Leon County or have you expanded to? We're in we're in Leon County. And then we've got uh, I think we're open to Walton Okay. Uh, or Fort Walton Beach, but we don't have that many accounts outside of town. There's some stuff in Port St. Joe. Um, really, it's just whoever calls that really wants it. You know, they're the ones that get it first. So um, there's a couple accounts in Panama City Beach, and I think uh, Beach Liquors has like five locations, four or five gotcha. locations. Yeah. Yeah. And so that those those little uh, spots around that you know heard about us, they want to get some draft on. They're able, and you're able to get them the fresh beer, especially. 
officially now. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your off-premise offerings and, and your pivot into packaging some more of the beers. In looking through your, your website, your Instagram, and your releases, I'm really curious, how do you choose what beer gets what package format? Um, if, depending on, uh, because some beers are in the 16-ounce growlers, some are in the tall boy cans, and then some end up in glass. I'm curious what um, what your thought process is and what goes in what. There for, there for a little while, it was, you know, we we got the 19.2 ounce like tall stove pipes yeah, yeah. and we were running those hard for for a while and then all of a sudden they were out of stock when I went back to order. And so I was like, Oh, come on, we got to get stuff. And so we ordered the little 375 milliliter cans <laughs> and started just going that route. And so for a while there was zero thought process okay. in, uh, what was yeah. And so I think, I mean, some of them, we do growler releases for stuff that's, you know, like heavy fruit additions, like things we know aren't going to like, there's, even though we filled this as a growler, there's something a lot different about it than like this is the can is more prone to being like tossed in the back of the fridge, you know, and forgotten about. So yeah, those heavy fruit edition beers, we would tend more towards a growler release, but our, our packaged, the Imperial stouts that we were doing in the twisty top cans, like stuff that had like mounds and mounds of coconut that we like, would I put that in a bottle like bottle that without verifying like shelf stability and stuff like that. That was kind of the decision point there without having being able to run labs like full blown, uh, like we do for some of our barrel age stuff. Then, uh, that was the decision point there. It was like, go, go to the twisty top cans, you know, a little more like urgency and drinkability, uh, or drink consumption. Um, right. And then, yeah, for our stout releases, like we've got our barrel age stuff that's been stable for, you know, and it's like, all right, we're out of all these other things. Start pulling barrels, you know? So thought process would probably be more like survival okay. at that point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, um, that's definitely a viable option. Yeah. And we, we, we went to, we've always been heavy on growlers. Okay. So I had no quarrels with ordering. I think we ordered like 10,000, 32 ounce growlers right whenever everything kind of shut down. Okay. Cause I was like, we got a lot of, we every tank in the building was full cause we left for spring break, you know? So we brewed everything to get it all full. We deal with it when we get back a week and a half later you know, the world and then the world changed. So, so we got a lot of beer. We got to go through, get some growlers. And we went to more of like a growler exchange program. So, so that people could just not worry about like paying six bucks for a new piece of glass when they got, 15 20 of them sitting at the house gotcha. so we we took a bunch in we would like clean them and package them and put them away so that we weren't putting like during the height of the pandemic not putting glass that someone else had used back in the uh, system so we just kind of rotated through everything like put glass away and uh and then we'll inspect it later okay so and then you were still able to get the people right the beer that they wanted during so. that um and then so one of the products of the pandemic we were talking about earlier was deep water, which is your new hard seltzer. And I'm curious um, what, how that, how that evolved. How did that idea, um, is that something that you, you saw and you thought we, we need to make one of those or how did that, how did that come to be? And then where do you see it going in the future? <laughs> Honestly, I kind of knew that the seltzers were going to be a thing like the, the, the bigger market mm-hmm. a couple years ago. And we had, we had played around with developing one uh, on like the pilot scale. And I wasn't really happy with the 
results. Like we could get there, but it was going to take a little more R and D and I just didn't want to put the time into it uh, for, we had so many other projects that we wanted to work on. And so, um, during the pandemic, you know, all of a sudden we got all of this time on our hands because we're running curbside. I only got one employee on site a week or during for uh, open hours to fulfill curbside. I don't have the distraction of 27 questions going on. And uh, and then my, my guys aren't brewing that much. So we're working on infrastructure projects around the brewery just to keep them busy. And so at some point I got an email about this webinar for seltzer production and I was like, ah, well, check that out. And so it's more of like a, I knew this was something that everyone's kind of running down that path. And I really had no like interest in it other than whenever I found out how, how far the like support infrastructure, like all the, the products that are now built around brewing seltzers. I was like, oh, well, I don't have to make this up on my own. Like, there's a lot of information out there now. So kind of like that, now we've got something we can play with and not take seriously. We can, you know, it's it's not like I have to put a lot of thought and design around, you know, fermenting out some sugar, you know, and adding some flavor. So a little bit more of like a, a playful release uh, for us. And it, and it, we can turn it almost three times faster than like our other fermentations. So we can fit it in between other things that we're doing and just eat up tank time that would otherwise be idle. So, okay. so it's, a, it's kind of a win-win. Yeah. What's the reception been on it since, uh, since you just have been, I think it started as a draft release and then it's now it's moved to package. And I think you said distribution as well. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we started draft in the tasting room and then, uh, like that was received really well. We immediately put it in the, uh, twist top cans because it was still a little beach season going on there and but uh we we never really intended to go like full packaging like like six pack cans or anything but we had some of the sleeks kind of fall into our lap and found out we can with Ironheart, a mobile canner found out that they all of a sudden had the sleek like canning head and everything the equipment to uh, put it in package and it was kind of like this well everything the planets have aligned and this is all here like you know why wouldn't we do this so and yeah I, uh, it's been it's been good and the the margins on it are great i can see why everyone does it and and we get to play with flavors that we wouldn't otherwise play with in beer. So what flavors? So what flavors did you ultimately decide you're gonna? There's you have two solid. You have two regular offerings now with the salt with the salsa. Yeah, for right now we've got a uh, it's a blue raspberry and an orange zest, and we went with this like color like spectrum thing because what i notice about most seltzers is that whenever you order them at the at the bar if if you can find draft they're coming out in a glass and it looks like you just got a tray of water you know going to a table so we wanted something that would really pop and colors that would be other than beer colors okay and so we got the blue the blue raspberry actually it's it's kind of weird because we kind of enhance the orange uh or we we prioritize the orange so it's it's almost this weird it kind of looks blue but you're tasting orange so you get a little bit of this cognitive dissonance going on okay and so 
we've got a peach and champagne. Some of, a lot of people call it champipple, but yeah, we got kind of that mimosa, but with uh, our Bellini, mm-hmm. I guess. And then we've got a watermelon that will probably come out in the spring. Cool. And we've got some some other interesting things that I we've planned for Christmas. So, like I think we got like a uh, like a um, bear claw donut seltzer. Because <laughs> why not? Because yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll be very interested to see how that turns out. <laughs> Because that's the, you can kind of you can make it. Why wouldn't you make a candy cane seltzer or a, right? Yeah, yeah, like traditional winter flavors. That's cool. That's cool. So then, where looking at your anniversaries, then talking a more about cans, um, you always seem to go. I don't want to say overboard, but when it comes to your can with the can shortages? I think when we were planning Caniversary, we hadn't even, while I think people were starting to talk about the can shortages, it hadn't quite, it was like we knew there was going to be a packaging shortage, but in, I think we were like, as we were prepping for packaging, it was like early August. So we were still able to get, we're in 16 ounce cans for the majority of our, our package. And we were, we were still getting the twisty top cans regularly. I've started buying a lot of that stuff up right now, so we're stockpiling. But uh, as far as the shortage goes, we weren't quite feeling that yet. And I know the 12-ounce cans, I don't envy anyone that's in in 12-ounce cans primarily. Yeah, I don't envy anyone that's in 12-ounce cans as their their primary package because that that got tight quick. Yeah, but even the stubbies and the slims, the, yeah, it's, it's weird to walk down the soda aisle of the grocery store now and see there's really only a few flavors of soda, not the the, the huge different varieties yeah. anymore. All that choice we're used to. <laughs> yeah, well, when they say it's choice paralysis, right. you've got too many choices. But as far as caniversary, I think it was one of those like, all right, well... We're, we're back we're back open we're away from the point where we're losing ground on last year you know we look at our anniversary we know it's a huge event spanning across five days how do we even get close to getting the same revenue like out of that event you know how do we build how do we even like what format? We know that it's not responsible for us to have people on top of people like we normally do. It's normally, you know, butts to elbows in here for our anniversary. We didn't want that. And so we kind of thought about it from that like safety first perspective. Let's let's put a lot of emphasis on while we do want people to that are comfortable coming out to come out and enjoy in a responsible, safe environment. How do we put the vast emphasis on curbside so that we can keep as many people that would feel uncomfortable with a big event like that, like so they don't have to come in to the tasting room to experience those beers that we're playing around with for that once a year kind of, uh, I mean, we go all out crazy. Yeah. So that's where we came up with, we normally have like... Our anniversary event is one main day, and for that day we release like 16 different beers, and we do it in flights. So we have like flight one is a two-hour time block, and then flight two is a two, and so we do that throughout the course of it. Made it might have been three hours. 
and that way people can plan their day around, around you know, leave. they'll come in towards the end of the first one and grab one and two, and then they'll go to lunch or have lunch there or something, and then be there for whenever we go from three to four. Or some people would camp out all day. So what we did was we split that day up into four days. And so we had the flight, the day one flight, and we packaged the whole flight into the twisty top cans and got the little four pack holders for them so that people could just go, Ooh, I want the day one stuff. Boop. And then, and then it's the curbside. Right. And we had plenty of refrigerated storage space so that anyone that just bought them as they came out all weekend could pick them all up at once. And then we also did a, uh, I think we sold like 15, like full weekend packages. So you can get all the releases. So you get everything, including the saisons that we did for the bottle release, as well as we threw in a tin tacker and some stickers and some other cool prizes and stuff. But those people could just get them like the Thursday before we started doing anything. So it, it worked out great. There was a lot of stuff we learned from it. Like this one, this is a very efficient way to get... If we were open normally, right, mm -hmm. and we could, the biggest problem with that is, like, I can't move people through fast enough, yeah. right? We can't serve enough beer any faster. And so by pushing a fair amount of that stuff to curbside and getting, you know, in a normal situation, 20 to 30% of the people that just want to come and grab the beer just out of the line is a great you know so then they're happy being able to take their releases and they don't have to come in and fight with all the other people that are, that are right for the, the party that's yeah so then moving forward do you find yourself wanting or do you find yourself where you want to prepare for that next year and incorporate curbside or do you see you know once there's a vaccine and we go back to how everything was before um or some kind of hybrid of both. What do you see going forward? I think I think the curbside, especially as a part of our big events, is is here to stay. You know, do we keep doing curbside during the week? You know, as like this. I mean, it, it might not be worth it to have that person on site once we kind of go back to like quote unquote normal. But uh, if you know, the, are we going to be back to like ish normal ish? Like, are we encouraging how, at what point are we encouraging people to get back together and, you know, hug and, you know, slap hands. And yeah. right now my plan is to do roughly the same kind of thing, like go into it big with package. If we can get a hold of cans by then and, uh, then we'll pivot if everything kind of normalizes uh, by summer. So, you know, it's it's kind of I think we're small enough to be very good at pivoting and and turning. I know there's some some bigger breweries out there that it's kind of tough to sh like steer the wheel. But yeah, I mean, we're we're in a good spot as far as our our size and adaptability. So good, good. And what's looking forward? How do you? Looking forward, you've got you've got the can releases, you've got the, the tasting room that's that's where Florida's open 100% now. No one knows the future. How do you maintain that stream of releases and and find inspiration for the next thing, the next experimental beer you want to do? You know that I think getting new people in. I mean, I 
I can only, uh, my, my brain is only so big, you know, and sometimes we get so busy that it's not like I can really plug into what's going on in the world and like, see what new beers are coming out, like experience everyone's release announcements and all that. And so, so really, I mean, we, we have a pretty like broad approach to brewing where while we may not be great at any one exact, like one thing in particular, we are very good at almost everything. Okay. And so, uh, you know, when you can draw from that breadth of, of styles and I think it's beer is infinitely complex. Like we have so many permutations of ingredients that we can use. And, and so I think the, the trouble comes with naming them and putting a label on them. So, um, yeah, but yeah, getting, getting some fresh blood in as we grow brings new ideas. Uh, our, we, we talk a lot. I mean, everyone banters back and forth in the brewery pop culture, you know, we get new ideas ideas from that and so how many how many brewers do you have on staff now so we got uh two full-time guys other than me and then we've got one part-time guy well i guess he he's full-time but he splits his time half in the tasting room half in the uh, brewery that's the kind of creative well that you draw from is those folks and everyone everyone on staff kind of contributing their own yep and then and yeah we've got a great tasting room staff we've got a couple of guys have been with us for like three years three plus years since almost since we opened and then yeah we've got we didn't lose anybody during the pandemic that well we had a couple that got like quote-unquote real jobs <laughs> but we kept all our, our full staff and tried to get them as many hours as we could especially our back of house guys so everyone's still with us that started with us awesome so awesome and then have you uh, what new infrastructure projects have you, you mentioned them earlier, um, what additions to the brewery has COVID allowed you to take on that maybe weren't there before, if any? Um, I think I think the biggest thing uh, was we've we've worked a lot on process we've we kind of dove into every little bit little nook and cranny in the brewery to figure out where we could clean things up get big big moves on quality control quality assurance record keeping uh and then we i think we've got a new keg washer which has kind of smoothed things out and given us an like a dedicated acid cycle to those kegs so like reduces maintenance better quality control on on that front we finally finished installing our upgraded brew house so for a while we just critical path when we installed it we got the the uh, boil kettle steam installed we got the mash tun rake you know rolling and then you know we had temperature control so at that point so we finally got all the rest of the seam like so now we can do step mashes and all the little things we've got a souring system on the uh, whirlpool as well as oddly we've got a steam jacket on the whirlpool but we'll, we'll figure out if we need to use that at some point and then installing our hot liquor tank we were running off of uh cereal renais for the last like year and a half so now we've got big hot liquor tank rolling we should be getting our cold liquor tank online which will help with like getting that beer in tanks faster 
and then yeah just lining out we've got big upgrades on our glycol and keep getting things cold faster and uh what else new forklift so i don't have to run the uh my forklift didn't have brakes so it was more like driving a boat you know you had to be ready to go into reverse when you wanted to stop so and then but now they can break right now you can break on the forklift and then we added a i guess quintupled the size like our refrigeration capacity uh, on site so so for tasting room or distribution for distribution for kind of like our buffer cooler between distribution and uh and um and the brewery so cool so then what's been the biggest is there a particular beer that's benefited so you've kind of tightened up the processes or, or had better had the full spectrum of equipment and now you know spear pressure or retwell one has any one particular beer or one particular process really benefited from that or is it just kind of an overall uh i think because we focus in so much on like yeast yeast health and like our fermentation times are getting shorter so which is allowing us to schedule better uh which is just increasing our capacity and all, overall my quality of life um, <laughs> okay. maybe my wife's quality of life so <laughs> i'm i'm fine with pivoting and uh you know i'm gotcha. i'm good at uh shooting from the hip but yeah so getting getting ahead like which is going to help us in the long run be prepared for the packaging shortages that are coming in and so we'll, we'll see how that goes I think finding some, we got a lot of, we got ATP testing equipment. We had that kind of implemented before the pandemic, but really focused in on where we wanted to be testing and, is, and that. Can you go deeper into ATP testing? So ATP, like adenosine triphosphate, it's like the, uh, the energy that all living things like produce it's like your mitochondria produce this chemical that like is a building block of energy yeah anyway so the the presence of that we can you think like uh csi okay. you know you uh, spray the bed with luminol and all the gross stuff uh kind of glows in the dark so it's kind of like that except for what we're doing is we're taking like con- areas of concern and we've got a little swab and so we'll swab those areas snap the little uh swab uh like luminol chemical onto that swab and let it what it does is it starts glowing and we put it in a light meter that's kind of it's calibrated to detect it references the amount of light to kind of how much bacteria or yeast or whatever living things are still on that surface that you were swabbing so it gives us a good idea and we have a zero tolerance policy now on certain places in the brewery. There's there's some wiggle room on other places because we know that what we're doing is we're doing caustic acid ATP to test and see if everything's super clean and then coming back with sanitizer after that. So that that's, well, if we get low reads on certain areas and then we're hitting it with sanitizer, you know, we're getting great results. If we're getting zeros, which is what we're looking for, especially on some areas that are pre-fermentation, like areas that could be like logarithmically like increased our risk, 
we're, we're just re-cleaning, trying to get those zeros. And, uh, and so, zero means it's sterile. It's, there's no bacteria, no, no, nothing living. Right. Right. And I wouldn't use the word sterile, but it's as it's as absolutely sanitary as we can get with the equipment without like putting it under steam or pressure or flame. So, <laughs> so some some gaskets don't like that. Um, so that that kind of stuff and like just insurance policies that while you know it's a lot cheaper to do that ahead of. Uh, now spend a little bit of time than it is to have a problem, especially with packaged beer down the road. Sure. Waste all those, you know, valuable, valuable yeah. packaging materials on top of the beer and the labor that went into it and all that. So, um, so yeah, just just things that we didn't have the time to implement before because we were running ninety miles an hour just trying to keep up. So it gave us a good breather. I think we'll be a better business on the backside of all this with everything we've learned. So. Good. Um, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I've got yeah. so many more questions to ask, but looking looking at where you are um, and what you've learned and all of the new process and everything you do, you're doing with Deep, what are you most excited about in the future? Hmm. That's that's a tough question to ask because um, you know from or to answer uh, like on a daily basis I'm so in the trenches you know with like how do we fix this how do we fix that I'm more of a maintenance guy these days than uh, than anything else uh, I do know that on the horizon uh, we've got our own packet our own canning line in the near future okay. so that'll be a new adventure for all of us and make it that much more important that we've made the QC improvements around here. And then getting our own dissolved oxygen meter, because that'll that'll help out as well. I think that with everything that we've learned during the pandemic and all the improvements we've made and where we've gotten in a financial position, that I think that we are poised to finally like confidently say that we're ready for the next step. We're ready to grow. We're ready to really push the pedal to the metal. And maybe possibly get out of Leon County. (laughs) (laughs) So that's awesome. That's awesome to hear. And you know, the dissolved oxygen meter isn't always the sexiest part of the brewery, but it's so important and so necessary, especially when you're talking about cans. Um, I also saw a a post on your Instagram about deep farms. Yeah. Is is that an actual or because there's a series of orange trees, but I didn't know if that was, if that is, are you looking at a farm? Are you looking at farming ingredients? We have a family, family like a pecan grove out in Quincy. Okay. It's like right on the edge of Havana, Quincy. And so Florida. Yeah. Yeah. I mean my dad we've been on that property since uh I think I was 4. Okay. And so we've got pecans, we've got kumquats, we've got we we were growing hops for a while but they don't they don't like Florida that much. Um, it's one thing if we're planting fresh every year, but they just, they don't yield. So but then the vines don't get as tall and they don't produce as much, right? Cause aren't those generational vines or do they clear the fields? They, they pretty much clear every year. Um, but the rootstock just gets thicker and more ready to absorb nutrients. So they shoot up pretty quickly. It's, um, it's more that like for hops, hops are very photosensitive and I don't mean like the amount of light that they're getting. It's not like we're burning them down here but to flower 
if you think about like when we go into summer solstice, it's like the longest possible day. Here we have a pretty flat curve with our day length, but in the Pacific Northwest, that latitude, Pacific Northwest, New York, like mm-hmm. all that, Michigan, they have this huge long day into like short day. And so that change in day length is what signals the hops that it's time to flower. And there's been, I know the guys down in Apopka, Florida hops crew have been working with like, there's actually a uh, hormone that the hops kind of put out to like they produce when they start flowering and so they'll spray them down and it'll force force them to flower it's also got you got to wear some interesting uh protective gear when you're playing with that yeah um but anyway so yeah we've got we've got that out there and um we had originally when we were designing the brewery and we were trying having trouble like figuring out where to put it in tallahassee that was always our fallback plan was to build a farm brewery out there and then Gaston County didn't like that either so um, so then you're, you're talking about like bringing ingredients from from there to here and having it that be the kind of farm relationship yeah and we and we already we use the pecans in our beer we'll, we'll be using the satsumas that we'll get this year in our beer kumquats were probably another year out from having like a a good producing crop I think he's we're going to be putting blueberries in uh, pretty soon nice thing is my kids go out there and they they help with all the labor so the aspect of the beer industry where the kids can help yeah yeah. you know it says they'll be squeegeeing floors here in no time but (laughs) but yeah and then uh we're we're always looking you know we we originally came into deep with the idea that we'd have that like hub and spoke so we'll eventually have our production brewery like large enough to support multiple like outlets but we'll we'll see it's we we also like to do things without a lot of debt so so we'll we'll kind of see where we are uh we're almost at the five year mark so i get to make new plans that's awesome <laughs> that's awesome so once you hit five yeah you go on to play. well ryan thank you very much i appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me um i will we're right we're right about approaching the time limit i promised you so um just want to say thanks and uh, look forward to seeing more from you guys in the future yeah appreciate it awesome. That was our conversation with Ryan Lafitte of Deep Brewing Company. My thanks to Ryan and all the folks at Deep for their hospitality and sitting with me and talking about their time in the pandemic. If you're ever around Tallahassee or Leon County, make sure to check out Deep's Beers anywhere that fine beers are sold. Thank you to our sponsor for this episode, 99 Bottles in Sarasota. 99 Bottles located on 2nd Street in Sarasota. Merchants and purveyors of outstanding liquids. If you like the podcast, please like, review, or subscribe. If you have feedback, please drop me a line at mark at barrelagedmedia.com. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, and we'll see you next time where we talk about all things in the world beer-wise.